Daniel 7, 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire ensued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, White and pure were following him in, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his side he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You may be seated. Thank you, Damster family, Jeremy and Liz, Marlena, Harrison, Luke, and Calvin. We thank you for serving us, this church family, so well for your deep faith. We give thanks for you in the reading on this fourth Advent Sunday. Now, what we've been doing, a number of moves that we've tried to make, I, I think beginning with the fact you ask most people you rub elbows with during the week, you know about God, they're probably inclined to say, yeah, I think there's a God, but really what they mean is that God's a, an idea. Uh, that it's a philosophical abstraction. There's nothing really anchored in anything true. He's just there, and he's a place to hang your ethics or to, you know, at Christmas time to think a little bit more about it, whatever you might have it. But there's nothing really personal about that God. But if you talk to Christians, even this morning thinking about this, a Christian will say this, I have a personal relationship with Christ that I know God through having a relationship with Jesus. Uh, so what, what does that actually mean? And what I, what I hope it means is that the way that the Christian knows Jesus is, is that he has an active role in our daily life. 
as any relationship does. You think you're in a relationship with anybody. What that means is they shape you, they motivate you, they impact you. And for those of us who are Christians, we can say, Jesus, we have a relationship with Jesus in such a way that he uh, moves us on a daily basis and, and comforts us. I, I hope that's true for you. And if there's one time a year, you say, well, is the pastor just talking? You say, well, no, what Christmas does is it makes sure that we all know. God says, you know, all these people and their sinfulness, they're very simple. I'm going to make sure they can't miss it. I'm going to send forth my son, the eternal creator of the universe, who's with God the Father and the Spirit, and I'm going to put him down into history. He's going to walk in a most humble place. He's going to do things that other humans do. In fact, everything that other humans do. And that way, the people know, say, that's what I'm like. You can have a relationship with God through Jesus. There's an appearance. He comes among us. Now, it's not just at Christmas time, but we've been tracing the theme, not our normal practice to preach thematically, though this Advent we have, been tracing the theme of God appearing to his people. Uh, God would come visibly among the people to say, I'm real. You can have a relationship with me. And we looked at a number of the themes. You'll remember we said God often appears as fire. Very interesting. You know, say, well, there he is. He's, he comes down to Moses in the burning bush might be the most famous example. And God's visible to, in that case, Moses as fire. And we talked about that theme, meaning that God is a refiner of his people. That he's going to work on us. That once we're converted, God says, well, I'm going to mold you and shape you into the likeness of my son. And you say, if that's true, you're picking up on that theme, God is a refiner's fire among his people, then all of a sudden the trials in my life, the difficult things that I face become God's testing me, right? God's shaping me and molding me. My thought life, uh, is this a noble thing to think about or an ignoble thing to think about? Or, uh, you know, should I be spending my time doing this or my time doing that? How is God refining us? It becomes a very daily personal thing. After that, we looked at God as a warrior. It's an interesting Advent theme. Well, who's God fighting for? Why, why is he fighting for his people? Well, he's fighting the spiritual battles in our lives. That the 19th century theologians would call these depressions of soul, that there can be times in this fallen world where there's a darkness that comes in on me, that there's a spiritual oppression, and you say, enter God as a fighter. He's a warrior fighting not a territorial war, a political one, or a cultural one, but one in our hearts and minds to give us light and to give us hope that he fights for the church, that he'll be victorious. So God is fire. Uh, God as a warrior. Last week, Joshua 5. And today, and then Finally, this, this fourth Advent message, God on his throne. That God would often appear or reveal himself, we call these theophanies, God appearing among his people as a high and lofty king. Or at least he's going to one day consummate all history as the king of kings and lord of lords. So to uh, think about how prevalent this is, we'll go to a famous Christmas passage from the prophet Isaiah, 8th century prophet, You'll know uh, certainly verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. You can't miss, what is that? That's monarchical language. That's language of kingship. 
that at Christmas we read that verse because we recognize in Jesus, here comes forth, God's the king, he's going to put forth one, and all the world governments are going to be subject to him, that he's going to be the one who's really in control. And this pops up again numerous times uh, in, in the, you know, the New Testament. Take, for example, Stephen, the first martyr. You know the story, story, he's getting stoned. And listen to this. But he, fool Stephen, fool of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you read that say, Where is that drawing upon? It's going right back to the prophet Daniel to say Jesus is this figure, uh, this high and lifted up figure. Uh, God has revealed himself as king, that he wants us to know him as king, and not just any king kind of muddled in with the other ones, but the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one to whom all secular governments will bow. And what difference, what are the implications of this for his church, for those of us, uh, the, the elect, so to speak. So notice, uh, let's see if you have your finger open to Daniel there. It's an extraordinary vision. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's a difficult book. Uh, the first six chapters of Daniel are historical. You have many famous narratives. Daniel in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. Relatively straightforward. Daniel and his buddies exiled off to the University of Babylon. But then in chapter 7, uh, there's a pivot there's a pivot to an unusual biblical genre that we would call apocalyptic. The Daniel being God's chosen uh, prophet is given a vision of the future. And the opening of chapter 7, which we didn't read, the first eight verses, is Daniel viewing uh, different beasts. Four beasts, and those beasts represent secular, selfish rule. Um, you know, there's a, uh, you know, you'll read commentaries on this, and you say, well, this beast is this empire. You know, this is the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and maybe the, the you know, the Persians here and the, the Greeks here. I, you know, a lot of debate about that. But one thing's for sure is that these beasts in Daniel seven represent uh, godless rule. And after outlining the vision of godless rule, Daniel has the vision of the ancient of days from verse nine. Now, the Ancient of Days, you see how he's described, right? He's white, he's pure, he's powerful. He's surrounded in fiery flames, and thousands and thousands of others are serving him. There's no doubt about this, right? Daniel 7 and verse 9, that we're in a courtroom. That is a, not, not a court law room. We're in a, a monarchical, a king's court. There's a king's court. The Ancient of Days is up on his throne, and everybody else is serving him. And all of these other beasts, i.e. all the other uh, secular, selfish rulers, are going to come and serve the Ancient of Days. That's what Daniel says. And if you then go to verse 13, something more extraordinary happens. The Ancient of Days, he's up on his throne, and there came to the Ancient of Days one like a son of man, and he was presented before him, and to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom uh, is one that shall not be destroyed. What has happened here? How does the church understand this? There's a vision of Daniel. Say there's all the secular governments laid out there. There's one king who's high and lifted up, who controls all world history, the Ancient of Days. And 
another figure, another figure who's referred to as the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days and offloaded onto this Son of Man is a kingdom that will never end and to this Son of Man is given absolute authority. Say, so what do you think about that? What do you think about God as king? Who's the son of man? So we, we know, right? We know exactly who the son of man is, that this is a clear, as every one of these messages we looked at, say it's a direct bowstring right to the Lord Jesus. Say, who else could this be? This divine character that's given all authority, the ancient of days, ruling all things, delegating it to the son of man so that all the peoples of the earth will come and serve him. So friends, make no doubt about it. God wants us to know that he's the king of kings, that he's delegated all authority to Jesus. And as we move forward as a church and in our lives, that we're to live in light of Jesus being our king. In fact, you know, uh, so obvious is this, we take it for granted. But when we refer to Jesus as the Christ, which we do say Christ is not his last name, we say Jesus Christ, what the word Christ means, it's a very technical term. It's the, the Greek version of Messiah. You say Jesus is the Messiah. Well, we bring it over into you know, the anglicized Greek. It's Christ. And the technical term means Israel's anointed king. Uh, to be a Christian is to recognize Jesus as God's appointed king of the universe. And this ought to make, again, we are those who have a personal relationship with Jesus. Having the king, having him as our king, should make a big difference for us. So we'll just make a few moves in light of this uh, Daniel 7. That's by way of introduction. So point number one, maybe obviously, but something we've forgotten. Point one, God as king shows us he has a kingdom. Say if you're, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are self-aware. Say what are the implications of that since we all have a local context? To say I'm a, citizen of Avon, I'm a citizen of Ohio, I'm an American, probably like most of you, say, don't I have an earthly citizenship? They say, well, yes, you do. But how then can I acknowledge Jesus as king? Do you see these are kind of two parallel paths? What does it mean to be a human? We know that God sets up governments. Uh, what does it mean to be a good citizen? And at the same time, to be one who is subject to Jesus as king. You know, all of Christian political ethics boils down to that declaration, Jesus is our king. And so you think about the two streams, how might they be reconciled? So take, for example, 1 Peter 2 and verse 13. You look at Romans 13, absolutely clear. Christians are to be good citizens, that we are those who are sensitive to the rule of law. Uh, to our constitution, to being those who people would look at us. I hope that the city of Avon would look at us, say, you know, we're a bit better of a city because those folks meet here, that they do good things for the community. They obey the law. They don't, you know, buck the system recklessly. And you've had Christians that have gone so far to the other side. You say, well, I'm not at all, you know, going to be subject to any, you know, earthly authorities to say that's not really what we're commanded to do, but rather to say God has put... Uh, earthly rulers in the positions that he has. He works through non-Christian people, and we of all people should be uh, good citizens. You know, sometimes a, a young guy will come to me, probably testing to see if I'm a legalist, or I, I don't know why, but say, well, Pastor Shaw, you know, I'm 20 and a half. I'm nearly 21. Uh, you know, can I go out on the town? Don't you think I could, uh, you know, pass off a fake ID and have a beer? What do you think about that? I say, well, actually, we Christians, we follow the law. There were those who respect the rule of law, 
We're thankful for good government. We recognize God working through non-Christian governments so that we might be restrained, so that our society can navigate our sinful problem. And so, again, we are those who respect the rule of law. We want to be good citizens in our time and place where God would have us. Acts 17, God places us in a time and a place for a reason. We, of all people, should be good citizens. At the same time, you'll read something like this, Philippians 3.20. Paul would say, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That our citizenship is ultimately not here, but with Jesus as king and the city that he's going to usher in. And you're trying to navigate this a long history in Christian thought, you know, from Augustine's, those of you interested in church history, his major work, the city of God, what it's dealing with is precisely this problem, right? You've got Rome on the one hand, you've got Jesus as king on, on the other hand, you know, Luther talked a ton about the two kingdoms, uh, how do we navigate this? And here's, here's the real tension that we have to give a lot of thought to as a church. There have been times in our history, American history, where the, the gap between these two so-called kingdoms, right, the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom, there's, a, there's been times where that gap is fairly narrow. Um, I'm, I'm struck. Those of you who lived through the 1960s, you've got to explain them to me. I don't know what happened there. Uh, you know, you, you look at something like the, you know, John F. Kennedy's platform in 1960. You say there's a, a ton of Judeo-Christian overtones to it. Um, you think of something like the, the Moynihan Report, the report that shocked the nation's 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, liberal Democrat, and what that report is, it's a robust defense of the family and a robust defense of, of dare I say, dads. You say there's a, a real consensus in America not that long ago to say, okay, there's a, a strong Judeo-Christian uh, stream that has informed our founding documents, that it informs uh, the way we behave. We can all agree on things like the importance of family and the types of citizens that we're bringing into the world and things like hard work and that we can call moms moms and not birthing mothers and things like that. There's a, a long consensus, right, a consensus where the gap between being a heavenly citizen and an earthly citizen for a Christian was, was close. Still different, but close. So the reality that we face now is that there's a, a real gap growing between secular, non-Christian uh, political philosophy, shall we say, and uh, heavenly political philosophy, to use, use that crudely. So how? We've got to give a lot of thought we, again, should be kind and loving and engaged and good citizens on the one hand, but we also know that our allegiance is to King Jesus. How are we going to do this? And my prayer as a church, right, that we do this very tactfully and lovingly, that we render to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God what is God. But all this to say is that we want to be those who are faithfully present, use that, that term, faithfully present in our spheres of influence, honoring King Jesus being the best citizens of earthly administrations as we can, and no doubt about it that when the kingdom of heaven collides with the kingdom of man, we obey God, we don't obey men. But in the meantime, we are given a charge. We're given a charge to be ambassadors for the true king, the one who has all the secular governments in his hand. And by the way, what I just described, that growing gap, it shouldn't surprise anybody here, as I talked about last week. 
that we're not at all surprised that non-Christian administrations uh, would behave in non-Christian ways. That's very much what the Bible would expect. But we, being the called-out church to say we honor King Jesus, we want to be good citizens, help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithfully present, to point to the truth, knowing that that's where ultimate freedom and goodness and hope are. Uh, one thing I found helpful in this, thinking of God as king and his kingdom, is to think of the Bible as a five-act play. I don't know if we have many theater-goers here, but it actually works out quite nicely to think the whole drama, you know, you pick up the Bible, say, oh man, 66 books from across many centuries. How do I say the Bible's one smooth story, one smooth arc? And you can think about it as a five-act play, you know, God's history. Act one, God creates matter out of nothing, as we sang in the first Noel. He creates matter, creates everything good. Uh, creates crown of his creation are human beings made with rational faculties to know him and enjoy him say act one gets us off to a very good start but act two like any play is where you've got real the problem comes in that we abuse the freedom and the goodness that god has entrusted to us that we're bad stewards of that that we turn our own way and as a consequence that all of creation is groaning under, uh, uh, under the curse of sin, that that's the only world that we've known, that there's a great problem. We've, we've bucked God, we've cast him aside, say God's good creation, no thanks, we ruin it in our selfishness. Act two is that humans rebel and sin enters the world. Act three, gloriously, God in his grace inaugurates a game plan of redemption that he invites, right? he calls his people to repent of those ways and to come follow him. And, and, and the whole outworking of history is God gathering a people to himself so that he might be glorified and that we might enjoy him. That's act three, God's great game plan to restore his creation that has been lost. Then act four, we could then say the church plays a part in the play in act four. That act four is the people of God representing King Jesus on earth for the time that we have, that we're going out into our, our places of work, interacting with our families. Later this week, you're going to see some family members. Maybe they're not Christians. You say, oh, here I am. I'm in act four of God's great drama, being an ambassador for the king, trying to win as many people as I can to King Jesus to show them his gracious rule. And then, of course, we long for, we await uh, act five, which is Christ returning and consummating all, Christ, all, all of history as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you follow that. So the Bible really it can fit into a five-act play. God makes everything good. We say no thanks. The curse of sin enters in Act 2. Act 3, God says, I want to redeem a people to myself through my son. Act 4, the church is called out uh, to do the work of the king, representing him for the short time that we have here in his creation as we await Act 5, the end of the play, for Christ to come back as the, the, the king and the ruler to gather those and to consummate his kingdom. So the point here is that if we acknowledge God is king, if he's revealed himself as king, which I hope we made the case that he, he has, then what that means is all those who've surrendered to King Jesus, all those who've put their faith in Christ, Israel's anointed king, that we are subjects, firstly, of a heavenly kingdom that we as uh, Christians, our political philosophy is that Christ is king. Yes, are we good citizens? You better believe it. But our primary aim is to please King Jesus and to win as many possible as possible to him. Now, bold heading number two. Sorry, I'm playing with this driving me a little nuts today. Sorry about that. Point number two. As God is king, what demand does this place on us? What's our response, so to speak? And I think our response is our allegiance. That if this figure exists, again, we 
Christians say he does, that his dominion is an everlasting dominion and all the nations and languages and peoples are going to serve him. Say, here he is, the Lord Jesus, given this authority by the Ancient of Days, what should we do about it? Take it casually? You say, no, this demands the allegiance of his people. Now, here's the rub, and I think the real tension in our, in our time together today is that we have a very odd relationship with uh, leadership in general. You notice that? To say, deep down in all of us, we, we at, on the one hand, long for a, uh, a leader that is pure and right and going to do the right things and, and lead us, and you kind of see this, uh, you know, you're a student of history, and you kind of trace this, say there's something deep down us. We, we, we like a leader to follow. We want, we want good leaders to follow who can charge the hill and, and take the people to where they need to go. And we say, yes, leadership done rightly is a good thing. No matter where you go, you try to set up even an egalitarian society, some kind of leadership emerges. It's, it's, what, it's part of what it means to be human is to see that there, there, are, there are leaders and we want good ones. At the same time, we don't like following, and we certainly don't like being told what to do. And you feel that tension, right, with this topic. So I really long for a, a good king, a pure king, who's unlike all other earthly administrations, all of these flawed figures, right? The best of leaders. I mean, this is being played out in a, in a major way on our national scene uh, with the, you know, taking down of statues, uh, for example, to say, well, even those who we've esteemed as good leaders in the past, uh, there's chinks in their armor that they've got. No, say no person uh, can, can pass the test. So we got this strange relation. Is there somebody out there who can lead well? And the Bible would have it. Yes, there is one. There is one who's pure, and there's one who does all things well and does all things right. And any kind of human leadership that's going to get anywhere, really, we should model that leader uh, before we go anywhere. So the strange relationship within each one of us, we long for a pure king, but we don't really want to follow him. Uh, what's the resolution? And before I get there, I think two main problems with thinking of Jesus as king and him deserving our allegiance. First is the the selfish impulse towards autonomy, and not to use jargon there, but autonomy is a very good, good word. It means self-law, uh, self-rule, that I really, uh, I'm a lot like these uh, secular governments in Daniel 7, actually. The secular governments who say, no, I'm going to do my own thing and I want to exercise power, say, that battle's alive and well in my heart, uh, that I uh, actually want to rule myself, that I like throwing around my way to, you know, the old saying, um, you know, I, I, if I could, I'd like to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at any funeral and the baby at every christening. You know, we like attention. Uh, we like power. We like to do our own thing. And here, all of a sudden, we're presented as, here's Jesus the king, and you owe allegiance to him. You submit to King Jesus. I'm not doing that. But I think in this room, we know what happens when we do that, when we turn to ourselves. And paradoxically, we think in self-rule, in self-law, we think that's where freedom is. But actually, what happens there is enslavement. That we give in to our earthly passions, we begin to indulge our flesh, and when that happens, we hurt others, we become miserable, selfish, selfish people. And so, again, we want self-rule, but deep down we know there that self-rule leads us on a path of destruction. Is there somebody who would rule me in such a way that would give real freedom and real joy? Is there a king like that? Again, we point to our king, the Lord Jesus. Secondly, and maybe 
maybe a bit also very, uh, in some ways, painful, say, reject Jesus as king because I like to do my own thing, but also reject Jesus as king because I don't like all that he permits in his kingdom. Say, if I'm a Christian and I acknowledge Jesus as king, and I'm a member of his kingdom here and now and waiting his consummation of the kingdom, then, then why aren't things better? Why does he allow all this bad stuff to happen in my life? Uh, I thought his kingdom was going to be a good place and a place of peace, and in the meantime, I got all this going on in my life. I've got the loss of loved ones. I've got uh, you know, difficulty at the workplace that I'm uh, scorned and spurned at each turn. Say, what kind of king is this permitting all this in his kingdom? You know, this last week, um, Monday evening, I get a call from a friend. I was anticipating this time of year, as I knew I was anticipating very good news. And so I pick up the phone, and I hear his voice. He says, I have very bad news. A young couple he said, well, as you knew, we were expecting a baby girl here. And uh, she came, but she didn't make it. Full term, died right after birth. So Thursday morning, you go down in that graveside in those high winds, little tiny casket, really bad day, strong Christian couple. Why does the king permit stuff like this among his faithful? But to the credit of this young couple, you know what they said? They said, we trust, we trust King Jesus. We know that he's the author of life. We know that he works all things to his purposes and that all those who are his are going to be restored in a time where there's no more tears and no more sadness. We trust the king. So I know, I know we're all in the midst of, of battle. It's a time of loss for a lot of us, disappointment, frustration. We might be saying, well, if Jesus is king, you know, what kind of lousy, lousy stuff is he allowing it to happen? Are we able to see that all of us, right, that he's going to consummate his kingdom, that we can trust the king, that he's a good king, and that he's going to work all things out, even in the difficult, most difficult circumstances in our life, like losing children or seeing our children suffer, even in those matters, that the king is good and he's working all things to him. And friends, all this invites, you know, really what allegiance is about is about a purpose. Terrible things happen to people when they lose purpose. You know, the deaths of despair that we've talked a lot about a lot. Terrible things when there's no mission or no purpose. You see the invitation? Oh, there's a mission and a purpose. There's a real king. All other earthly kings, they're going to let you down. King Jesus won't let you down. And you're his ambassador. If you surrender to him, you do his bidding, and you, you live it out. And we have this lifelong mission. So I've made two moves so far. We've seen God has revealed himself as king. If that's the case, then he has a kingdom. We have dual citizenship. We represent the king in our earthly territories for the time that we have. Secondly, God as king entails our allegiance. Are we committed to the king? Do we trust him? Do we trust his goodness? And finally and quickly, that God's appearing as king means that he guides us and protects us. You know, I pray often. I admit that it sometimes can become very rote to kind of throw away prayer. Oh, God... Lead, lead our church, or, you know, God, lead my home. What do I really mean by that? Say, it's a good prayer, I think, the core of it, right? When we pray things like that, God, God, guide us and direct us. Really, it's a call to say, God, as I submit to your authority, as I recognize you, you as king and me as your subject, and I look at, really, your, your, your word as kind of like the manifesto of the kingdom, this is what it's like to be under King Jesus. As you, you live that out, you submit to him, you, you go under the word of God and live it out that God will 
pave our path as we trust him. Friends, that he'll guide us, he'll protect us, he'll vindicate us. You're looking at the news. I get a publication this week, front page, China and Taiwan. And I pick up this publication over here and over here, you know, Russia and Ukraine and the eastern border there is a real mess. And then I go back here and it's a border crisis. And you get all flustered and say, what are these secular institutions, these secular governments doing? If only there's one who's going to sort it all out. Say there's one who's going to sort it all out. If you've surrendered to Christ, you know him today. So maybe you're not a Christian today. I'm very glad you're here. Every week there are non-Christians here. I'm very glad you're here. But I would pray this Christmas, you know, you've been thinking a lot about this, and say, I really, I've always thought of God as just this idea out here. Could it be that, you know, these Christians really believe that you can know God personally? That he, he would guide us, and we'd feel his protection and his care? And that I don't need to get flustered when I read the news and I get frustrated with these other governments and everything, that I can rest in King Jesus knowing that all the kingdoms of the earth are in his hand and that he's going to return again and consummate all creation and wipe away every tear from every eye. You say, oh, I wish that was true. Say, it is true. God put forth Jesus. You surrender to him today. Say, Lord, I've, I've been a sinful person. I've been, I've been, quite frankly, more preoccupied with Vladimir Putin and Xi than I have with, with you, the true king. And I confess I'm a sinner. I want to know this son of man. Will you come into my life? Change my life. Renew me. Make me one of those ambassadors. I pray you do that. And if you're a Christian, we are going to prepare now to take the Lord's Supper, which renews us inwardly and spiritually, right? To say that this king who came in the major is also one who gave his life. And we appropriate that. We say, yes, Jesus died for me, that I can be renewed in this truth that I'm his subject, that he's my king, and I'm his subject. And that's the one that's going to win the day. That's the kingdom that's going to, the only kingdom that's going to last is that of King Jesus. Friends, there is a king. He will guide, protect, and vindicate his church. May we rest in that this Advent and always. I'll pray. Lord, we do. We, we confess. We know that you're king, I suppose, by calling you Christ. Lord Jesus, we know you're king, but we've not always acted like it. We've been our own kings and queens. We, we want to be autonomous, and we kind of at the same time long for a good ruler and take shots at inadequate human rulers. And you say, is there any way kind of out of that cycle? Yes, there is. The Ancient of Days delegating to the Son of Man that all nations, peoples, and tongues would be subject to the Son of Man. Lord, help us today. We need your help. As we're citizens of your kingdom, help us to be good citizens here. And what that looks like is the gap, the gap between the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom grows. How do we do this well? We want to obey you and not men, but we want to be good citizens. We want to win as many as possible. The only way we do this is by your strength and your wisdom, Lord. And so as we prepare our hearts now for your supper, I pray that you would renew us and that we would to pick up on this theme that you would be back on the throne of our hearts. It starts there that you would be, Lord Jesus, on the throne of our hearts, leading us, guiding us, protecting us, and one day making all things right. So we commit this to you for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, you know, we already said the communal confession, that we confess our sins before the Lord. 
And also, if you're, you're not a Christian, it would not be a good idea to take communion because you've not surrendered to Christ as your Savior, that this is something Christians do to say we acknowledge Jesus' uh, uh, brokenness and his sacrifice for us. And so as we look now, if you would just uh, with me to say, when we do this as one church family, it builds us up in Christ and we proclaim his death. And so if you would, just take a moment of quiet reflection again, thinking about the Lord's sacrifice. If you would, pull back the top tab of the communion elements. And if you take the bread in your hand, Paul says, I received from the Lord what else I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The broken body of Jesus for redeemed sinners. If we could, church family, take the bread together. back the second tab. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ that cleanses us. We take the cup together. Now pray as the team comes back to lead us in our final hymn. Gracious Father, we thank you for renewing us inwardly and spiritually with your supper. That we together as brothers and sisters in you would think back to that cross to say that you, Lord Jesus, paid the ultimate price for us and that we can then have confidence not in ourselves but in uh, the, the power of your, your blood. And Lord, help us again to live in light of that, to live in light as, uh, of being those who've inherited your kingdom and that we would do your bidding here, acknowledging you as our king, our sacrificial leader. May we emulate you and love you for Christ's sake. Amen.